morning. Welcome to Northwest Community Church. Hope you guys are doing well and had a great weekend. I've got an announcement here for you this morning that I'm really excited about. And I want to make sure that you hear me. On June the 2nd, on June the 2nd, we will be moving to a one-service format. Okay? We will be moving to a one-service format. That is, that is not just on June 2nd. That's starting June 2nd, and that's continuing. Okay, I want to make sure you're clear. That service will begin at 10 a.m. Uh, on June the 2nd. Um, we're, we're not doing this because of attendance. There has never been a, in the history of Northwest um, that this, this facility has not been able to handle every single person in our history. Uh, we are doing this because we believe it'll unite us. We believe it'll bring great community. We believe it'll be great um, accountability. And we feel like that our elder team and our staff team, we feel like this is what's best for our church. And we want to go to a one-service format starting on June the 2nd at 10 o'clock. question you might have is what, what happens with our kids and, and um, what happens with our middle schoolers. Our middle schoolers will be meeting on Sunday nights. Adam will be all involved in talking to you middle school parents about that change. Also, Teresa, and our Northwest, Kid, our Northwest Kids director, has been working very hard with her team to try to work out the details of having one hour with all the students back there. We've revised our volunteer schedule and rotation so that there provides consistency to our kids, but it also doesn't allow for volunteers to be back there the entire time. And so we would ask for you, especially as we jump in this series called Together Through the Book of Nehemiah, that it's going to take everybody coming together to make this transition, which again, we feel like is best for our, our church. And I'm really excited about all of us coming together at one time, 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, for the glory of God, to learn about the work of God and the mission of God. Are you with me? Okay, so 10 o'clock, June 2nd, that will be the start. In order to kick this off, we're going to do something special on that particular Sunday. We're going to have a catered meal. So we will not have kindergarten through fifth grade. They will be in here for our first service together, okay? And they'll be in here with us. We'll have a great time. And then afterwards, we're going to go out to the cafeteria and do what you do in a cafeteria and let's eat, okay? We're going to eat and we're going to have a great time. We'll have a catered meal and uh, we're just going to have a great time together, just celebrating again being together. So June 2nd, 10 o'clock, that's the new format. What I want you to do right now is to set an alarm to say that the service begins at 9.45. So I want to make sure that you're aware. Let's be here. Let's be on time. Let's be here together. Let's encourage each other. Let's talk to each other. Let's fellowship together. Okay, I would love, as the Spirit leads, to call us on certain occasions that we're going to gather in here at 9.30 and we're going to pray for our community. And then at 10 o'clock, we're going to worship through, the, through music and through teaching and just in praying together. So please, man, we're, we're excited about this and I hope you are as well. And we want to do this again for the glory of God and because we feel like this is what's best for our church. So again, June 2nd, 10 o'clock, one service, all right? Before we jump into Nehemiah and we go into our lesson and our, our new series titled Together, I just want to pray for us as we get ready to jump right into Nehemiah together. So please join me in prayer. God, you are sufficient for all things. We recognize and we realize that we gather in this place because there is no one like you. And I love you. I thank you that you have given me the opportunity to stand up here and to pray over our body. And I just pray. I pray for continued unity. I pray that you'd bring us together. 
I pray for our new transition of going to one service. I pray for Teresa and her team. I pray for our children. We desire to teach them each and every day about you. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would raise up different volunteers, new volunteers, to come and to help us make this transition. I pray for the transition in our middle school for Sunday night. And pray again, God, that you would be with those details as they follow. Lord, we desire to honor you. We desire to gather together as a body and as a family. And so use this book this, for over the next eight to nine weeks. Um, use this service that uh, is here today because of your goodness and your glory to bring us together for your fame and nothing else. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but there's nothing better than a great team. I, right now, like many of you, probably were very loosely tied to the NBA until an individual by the name of Michael Jordan came along. Doesn't matter if you're a Carolina fan or you're a state fan or whatever the case is, but when Michael Jordan became a player for the Chicago Bulls, I was all in. Because I need to tell you something, that was one of the greatest teams I've ever seen in my life. Certainly Michael Jordan, certainly Michael Jordan, certainly Michael Jordan, was great in his own right. But there was Scottie Pippen and there's other folks on the team that you just needed in order for the team to come together and do what they did. Need to let you know something. Has nothing to do with my message. But I need you to know that in Charlotte, North Carolina, about 11 years ago, I ran into Michael Jordan at the, the, the Bobcats at the time and the security guard stopped him right in front of me. And I said, hey, MJ. And he said, What's up, bro? And he gave me a bro hug. <laughs> Never forget it. Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player on the planet, bro hug. This guy. Yep. I love that. And of course, listen, listen, I don't know. Listen, we're from the South. We're not really sure about hockey. But seriously, the Eastern Conference Finals, the, the Carolina Hurricanes, it's amazing to see what happens when a team, what? comes together and what they can accomplish. And here we are sitting here thinking, oh, are they going to make the playoffs? They're going to make the playoffs? No, they made the playoffs. They just won the second round yesterday or Friday night, and now they are in the Eastern Conference Finals. That right there is a great team and a great example of what happens when people come together. And I will tell you this right now. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm a bandwagon Golden State Warriors fan. I want them to win everything. I want them to win everything. I want them to win for nothing. I want them to win it all. I love it. I love the team. I love Steph Curry. I love it all. So if you're not a sports fan, please forgive me. But I want, to hear, I want you to hear me say this right now. As much and as passionate as I am about the Bulls in the 90s, early, early 90s, and passionate as I am about the Golden State Warriors and even the, in the, the Carolina Hurricanes, I believe what God has is and has established here, has brought us to where we are a great team. Please hear me, Northwest. God has done some incredible things to bring us together to be at this time right here and right now. And it is so exciting for me to be able to jump into this series titled Together so that we would be a unified, spirit-led, gospel-speaking, Bible-teaching team together for the work of God, for the fame of God, and nothing more, nothing less. And so I'm excited to be able to jump in and to learn some great lessons through the book of Nehemiah, and even in Nehemiah's leadership of how God used him to do something that everybody would probably think, that is just incredibly dumb. You can't do that. And so I think it's important for us to understand two 
specific points as we jump into the book of Nehemiah. First and foremost, I want you to hear me very clearly that Nehemiah is an ordinary man who gives us great lessons, but he is not God. And I think sometimes when we look at the Bible and we read these figures in the Bible and we see Paul and Peter and we see uh, Esther and Ruth and Naomi and we see all these people like, uh, uh, like Moses and Noah and we go, man, I want to be like them. Listen, the key of the scripture and the model that we are to live our lives is Jesus and only Jesus and him alone. So it is true that Nehemiah can teach us great lessons, and God used him in a great way, like many people in the scriptures. But he is not God, and not to be worshiped, but the God that he serves and the God that moved in his life is. So let's make sure that as we jump into this, that we recognize that. Here's a warning. I'm going to read this quote for you. What we do is we approach men and women in the Bible as if they're heroes, as though they're that type of person and not us. When you do that, the stories in the scriptures actually serve as kind of a burden that weighs on our expectations of how we view God. We exalt the role of man and diminish the role of God. And in so doing, we rob ourselves from the courage and the power that is made available to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah is an ordinary person who is, who is serving the God of the universe. Let us make sure that we recognize that and not forget that. Nehemiah has the same base, baseline like all of those in the scriptures outside of King Jesus. Is that we are sinners. We are in need of a savior. The Holy Spirit, when we come to get saved, comes into us, gives us the power to do and to overcome our sin and be convicted by that. We are adopted into the household of the living God. And that is what we want to make sure that we can see and be. Ordinary people being used by an extraordinary God. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, Many of you probably have seen the book of Nehemiah when it was taught because the church is going into a campaign asking for money or they're going to build something. I want to be very clear right now that yes, we have a piece of land. And yes, very shortly, maybe the end of the summer, end of July, somewhere around that time, we will pay that land off in full. You hear me? Okay. But at the end of the day, what I want us to see that God is doing more than using Nehemiah just to build a wall. It is, a, it is about building the people of God to be about the mission of God for the glory of God. And that's what I want us, and that's what we want us, the elders and the staff here, that's what we want to be about. And so as we take a look at this, this lesson that we're going to learn in the book of Nehemiah, certainly there is something about building, but the building, as it applies to us, is about the people of God coming together to do the work of God for the fame of God. And so that's what we want to make sure that we see in this. In order to jump into the book, hopefully you've got your, your journal, your Nehemiah journal right there. It's got notes and you can take notes. Hopefully you'll follow along. Hopefully you'll use this throughout the week and uh, write down questions, write down words, circle words. Um, we, we hope that you will take full advantage of that Nehemiah journal there. But in order to jump into ch chapter one, I really think it's important for us to do some background information so that we really kind of know where we're going and what's, what's coming. In 587 BC, the Babylonians, the Babylonians invaded Judah and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the city, and everything around it. So this was Solomon's temple. And so there were, three, there, were, there were three campaigns to come in and take the Israelites who were in Jerusalem and bring them into 
um, exile, um, in Babylonian exile. On all three occasions, the Babylonians took a number of Israelites captives. The first, the first group that had come out, um, some of them were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken out in the first wave. And we have 70 years. The Jewish people are in, are in exile for 70 years. Many people, Nehemiah being one, was born during that 70 years of being outside of Jerusalem in captivity, not knowing freedom and not knowing what it means to worship his God freely. And so in, in after 70 years, the Babylonians, um, they, uh, after the invasion, King Cyrus, which was predicted in scripture, um, let him go back in to rebuild the city. So this is crazy that a Persian king, because the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians. That's our history. So now you have King Cyrus right now, and he's going in, and he is going to allow them to come back in to do what? To build the temple, to build the city back. This is an exact prophecy that is predicted in Scripture, and if you do not believe it, then Adam has a whiteboard, and he'll come up here and write it up for us, okay? <laughs> Things are going really good for a long time. Things are going great. And then all of a sudden, what happened? They became apathetic. They stopped rebuilding. The enemy, the, their voice became loud. And so they stopped doing what they were said they were supposed to be doing. The book of Haggai tells us that. So the temple was not maintained. Sacrifices were not made. The Jews had adopted the pagan practices of folks that were back and had come, in, come into Jerusalem. You could say that the city, Jerusalem, was in a deplorable condition. And that's where we come to Nehemiah, who 800 miles away is living in a palace and serving the king of the area. Let's go ahead and jump into Nehemiah chapter 1 with that in mind. Again, we'll just read a couple of verses. We'll talk about it. We'll read a couple of verses, talk about it. And then we've got some points there at the end. We've got three. Verse number one says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Okay, so here's what we see right now. The, the, the name Nehemiah means the consolation of God, which is really a prediction and a prophecy of what he was going to do. Many times in scripture, you would read someone and they would say their name, they would say who they were the son of. And really the reason they would do that is to let you know what family members, what, what family they came from. Was it the Levites? He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't from the tribe of Benjamin. And here's what we learn basically on those first couple of words from the text. We learn very clearly that Nehemiah was simply an ordinary man. He didn't come from power or prestige or honor. He came from, uh, from Hakaliah. And I sure hope I said that right. <laughs> and, but we learn a little bit about him in the next, in verse 11, if you jump down all the way to the bottom there. It says, uh, verse 11 says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. So, so here's what we have. We have a Jewish man who's held captive. He's born in captivity, okay? He rises to the authority. He's in the king's court. He's living in the palace. He's placed as a, a cupbearer next to the king. See, what was going on at this time, we have to realize that many times the kings were trying to, they were, they were, they were, their lives were threatened. People were trying to kill them. So you had a cupbearer, so anything that was given to the king, any kind of drink that was given to the king, the cupbearer would test it to make sure that the king wouldn't be taken out. That was Nehemiah's goal. That was his job. So why did he have that job? Of course, he was a Jew serving under this king. Why did he have that job? 
Because I really truly believe it was because of the character that God that placed in his heart. He was an ordinary man, overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God. We're going to see that as we continue. Go on to verse 1, the second part. It says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah was checking in on the progress. Being close to the king, he knew that they had permission to go back into Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, and to rebuild the wall. He knew that Ezra and Zerubbabel were doing just that. So Nehemiah wanted to check on it. I, I want to ask, what's going on? How's it going? So that was a question they had. And here's their answer, verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So again, Nehemiah knew that this was supposed to be going on, but then he gets report that things had stopped, that apathy had come in, that the enemy of the Jews were overtaking them and they stopped doing what God had told them to do. And so how does he respond? Here is the cupbearer to the king. He's got access to the king. How does he respond? Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, this slayed me all week long. I've read this. I've taught this before. As, I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The passion for the things of God. As a foreigner, this is who he is. He is, he is Nehemiah. He's in a foreign land. The passion for the things of God. Never even seen Jerusalem before. He's been in captivity his entire life. He gets word that his city is in ruins and it absolutely wrecks him. He uses the words praying. There's different words for praying. In this text right now, he's using the word for praying as in pleading deep emotion with desperate lamenting before God. And we know when we get to chapter 2, you're going to see that this process was going on for four months before he actually even went to the king. That's chapter 2. That'll start next week. So let's look at verse 5. What does he say when he starts praying? He says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, listen to me. I know I'm stopping a lot, but I want to make sure you hear this. Here is Nehemiah who has access to the king, but he does not go to that king. He goes to his king. That is so significant right now. He said, yes, he is serving under him. Yes, he's able to sleep in the bed that he sleeps because of the king. But Nehemiah recognizes the true king of his life, and that's who he goes to, and that's who he brings his request to. He doesn't bring it to King Artaxerxes. First place he goes is to the God of the universe. What does he say about the God that he serves? He said, oh Lord God of heaven, here's who you are, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I'm so challenged by that prayer. Verse six, this is his request. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Look at his consistency in his prayers. 
what you could say right now is that there was a massive burden that was rising up in Nehemiah and he took that burden and he took it to the throne of his king, his true king. That's where he brought it. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Look at the pronouns that are coming up in his prayer when it comes to confessing sins. Which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. God, he's saying, God, we are wrong and we are sinners and I stand before you on behalf of my people and I just want to own it to you right now. I just want to own it. I want to come clean. Then in verse 8, he asks him to remember. So, so here's what he says. He says, Lord, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. And so here's what's going on. Don't miss this. Nehemiah, who has never publicly or freely been able to worship in a temple because he's been in captivity his entire life. What is he doing? He's praying to the God of the scriptures because in his time in captivity, he's so overwhelmed with the word of God that it comes out in his prayers to God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to know what happens when we pray and when we read his word. So Nehemiah here has been captivated by this God that we serve and talk about because you can imagine that he's in captivity when he's a young boy and somebody's telling him about God. Somebody's telling me, oh, yes, we're in captivity, but I need you to know that there is a God. His name is Yahweh. He will take care of us. He is good. He is faithful. He will fulfill his promises. Hold on to that, Nehemiah. And as he's raised up as a young man, he gets placed in this place of honor, sitting next to the king. He's next to the king. And what happens? He hears of this great burden. He hears of the great, the people that he's been hearing about and talking about his entire life. And what happens? He goes to God and he prays the word of God to God. It's beautiful. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Then verse 11 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah is looking at God and he's praying to God. He has been weeping, he's been fasting, he's been praying, and he says, God, what I'm asking you to do is just give me an opportunity right now. Help me be a part of the, of the solution. God, you are great and you are sovereign and you are powerful, but I'm asking you to grant me an opportunity that I can be a part of this great plan that you have. And then he says, now I was cupbearer to the king, as we've already talked about. So, so what do we learn? I think there's three things that we can learn in this and simply not limited. This is a narrative. There are things that are, there are, there are lessons on leadership and about God that, that we won't cover today. So, and I'm, I pray that you'll use your Nehemiah journal and write down some lessons that God might teach you through this, through your life group, through questions, through comments, whatever the case is. But I have one, uh, three points I want to make right now of some things that we learned. Number one, 
A burdened God searches for burdened believers. A burdened God searches for burdened believers. And so we have this, this kid who is, his family's been, been moved out into this um, uh, place of bondage, and he's born into this area, and then all of a sudden he gets placed into uh, a place of authority among the king. And the burden that God had given him and the scriptures that he had been reading just overcome him tremendously. Look at what it says. It, 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 the first thing, when he finds out this report, it says that when he got report, it said he sat down. The information about his city, the information that he had found out, the deplorable practices, all the things that took on. He first, he sat. He couldn't stand up. Next thing it says is that he wept. It said he wept for the state of his people. Listen, we have not been, you don't have to be in church very long to know that John eleven thirty five is where Jesus wept for the state of the people. Here is Nehemiah looking at what's going on. Really, really what he's doing, he's giving us a foreshadow of the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. Where he's looking and he's weeping because he's bringing Lazarus back and they don't understand all that he's doing. And so Jesus weeps. Nehemiah not only weeps, but he mourns. The word that's used for mourn is the same word that they would use or a response that is used when someone would die. That's the word that he is so overwhelmed. This information stirred up in him an incredible, incredible burden because when we look at Matthew, the great commission of the world to go and make disciples and baptize people, we know that that right there represents that we serve a burdened God. And so a burdened God, what is he doing? He's searching for burdened believers. What did he do? It says he fasted. The word fasted has also, there's a discipline of fasting where you go without to focus on God. There's also another meaning where it was, he was so overwhelmed with the situation that he simply could not eat. He lost his appetite. I'm overwhelmed that they're not able to, they're not going to be able to worship God. I'm overwhelmed at this opportunity that God has orchestrated to allow us to go back into Jerusalem, to go back and do this. And I'm overwhelmed that, listen, it's not being done the way God said it could be done. And so he prays. I, I like a quote I read on prayer. It's like, how does prayer work? And the response was, I'm not sure how it works, but I know that it is work. And that's, that's what he was demonstrating to us in, in his prayer. You, you could summarize Nehemiah's burden that's seen in his prayer in about three ways. And the first way, as you can see it, is that he had an overwhelming concern for the city and the people. You could summarize his prayer that there was an overwhelming concern for the people and the city, and it was coming out in his heart, his emotions. You could also say that he had an irresistible conviction and was absolutely convinced that God was the remedy for this sin. God was the remedy for this problem. Why do we see that? Because he did not go to the king, King Artaxerxes. Who did he go to? He went to the God of the universe, and that's who he called on. He also, um, you, you could summarize his burden by saying, hey, there's an unreserved compliance that, that God was going to use him. God, I know that you are sovereign, but I'm asking you to choose me, to use, use me in this effort of rebuilding. I would say that in, in studying for this in about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, the Lord placed a burden on my heart to teach this book, for us to go through this book together. I felt like it was a book for us to be able to unite. I felt like it was a book for us to realize that all of us have gifts and talents to be used for God's glory. 
I felt like it was a book to, that would unite us for the glory of God, for the fame of God, and for the mission of God. And, and, I, and I need you to also know that as I was going through it and praying through it, there's just a, an overwhelming burden that I have for our city. From South Durham all the way down 55, however far along you guys come down that area. Does that have an overwhelming, overwhelming burden for our city? And I know that you do as well. But one of the things I think that we need to be honest and recognize with is, is that on Easter Sunday, this past Easter Sunday, two weeks ago, we didn't baptize anybody. And I need you to know that I'm incredibly burdened by that. And I'm, I'm hoping you are too. I'm hoping that as we take a look at what God did in Nehemiah, that it would stir us up. We're moving to one service. We're all going to be together. It's like the embers of the fire coming together saying, God, use us. Let us make much of you. Now, it's not about baptizing people on Easter Sunday. It could be a baptism this week. It could be a baptism at the lake. It could be a baptism anytime. But what, I'm, what I want us to recognize and what I want us to evaluate is, are we burdened for the people that God has placed us among? And if we are not, what will it take for us to get there? Because we're simply not here to play church. We're simply here to make much of Jesus and do that together in a family. And I truly believe that God has given us a tremendous team to do what he's called us to do. So you might be saying, well, I'm new to, I'm new to the church. Well, listen, in God's sovereignty, he's brought everyone here that's here right now that says, hey, I'm part of this place. Then let's let us be an answer to God's prayer that there would be a church, Northwest Community Church, would be a burdened group of believers for the city and the area and the people that God's placed us among. I, I am so excited about what we've been learning through discipleship and David's message last week. And I'm excited about where we're going. But may we be that church that would be burdened for the things that God is burdened for. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus comes in, takes a look at the crowd. He's overwhelmed at the crowd. Says that he was, saw them without a sheep, without, they, they were sheep without a shepherd. It says in Matthew 9, 36, when, when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. The word moved with compassion, that phrase means he literally wretched. Literally like he was so overwhelmed that he came close to throwing up. He was aggravated in his gut. It says that they were harassed because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord that the harvest of the harvest to send out the laborers into the harvest. Northwest Community Church, I have a question for you. Are you burdened for the things of God? Let us stir each other up for this. May this year, may this year, using this message and all of us coming together to stir each other up, may a burdened God find burdened believers in this place for the glory of his name. Are you with me? Burdened for the things of God. Nehemiah was burdened for the things of God. I pray that we would be able to learn that too. Number two, God does not ex forgive excuses. He forgives sins. Nehemiah's prayer is unbelievable because of how he comes to get right with God. The burden was given to him. He did not make excuses. Sometimes in your life and many times 
in a child's life or there's all kinds of stuff where we get uh, confronted with sin and we defend or we excuse. What I think we learn from um, Nehemiah right here is that when he came to God, he came to own the sin that was upon him. Verse five, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. He comes to acknowledge God as sovereign in who he is, and then he comes to him and gives him his request. Lord, we have done this. We have done this. I and my family, we have done this. And God, we come to you and we're asking you to forgive us of that. The humility of a leader is seen in his prayer life as he knows he can do nothing at all without the help of first being right with God. So let us learn the lesson and let us learn about our sin and let us move forward with the greatest mission the world has ever known that there is no other greater cause that we can be a part of. Once we are confessed up and prayed up, then we can move forward with this great burden that he's given us. Number three, number three, pray for opportunities and plan as if you expect God to answer your prayers. Let me make sure I, I, I explain this the way I want to explain it. First of all, many of us in here lean towards a more reformed understanding of who God is, that God is sovereign and God is completely in control. And many times, many times, we will pray to that end. God, it's up to you. God, it's for you. God, it's all about you. And sometimes we use that reform bent as an excuse for a lack of participation or asking God to use us. And what I believe that Nehemiah has done in this text is that he has a great balance of the sovereignty of God because of the way he starts his prayer than the way he asks his requests. He starts his prayer with, O sovereign God of the universe. And then he comes in verse 11. I want you to see this. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So what he's praying is he's coming to God. He is coming to God because God is sovereign. He's coming to God because nothing can be done without him. He recognizes that. He believes that. That is his theology. He is not living, to his, living according to his anxiety. He's living according to his theology. He's been spending time in exile with the God of the Bible, reading it, studying it, understanding what God said he would do, he would do. He knows the promises of God because he's praying them to him. So he has a recognition of God's sovereignty, but he also has a recognition of his responsibility. Because he says, I'm going to stand before the king and I'm asking you to give me success. Basically what he's saying is, I'm asking you to give me an opportunity. Just give me an opportunity, God. To be an instrument of your grace, to do something supernatural among you and for you. And many times our prayers is that many times what we do is we start with sovereignty. God, you're in charge. God, you're in charge. You do this. Do this miracle. Do this now. Do this now. But we forget to ask for an opportunity to be about maybe an answer to our very own prayer. And that is really dangerous because it robs us of seeing the power of God demonstrated for the glory of God. 
And I'm not saying we don't pray for miracles because I got introduced to one this week that I just wanted to share with you this week. We pray for miracles. We ask God to do this. Listen, there's a couple, a, a high school couple, 18 years old, going to swim at the beach, got sucked out in a riptide about a month ago. They were all the way out in the water. And they, were, they were bobbing for air. They're looking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the guy said, we just need to pray. We need to ask and see if God is real. We need to ask him to send something to us. We need to ask him to show us if he's really, truly real. Screaming out loud, screaming out loud, this boat turned around to pick him up. You see the name of the boat? The boat's name is Amen. <laughs> Two high school kids getting sucked out into a riptide, asking if God's real. The captain of the ship, there's three of them, they're going from Florida all the way to New Jersey. Ro the waves were moving rough. The, the, the wind was kicking up some waves. He said, I heard something, and I saw a flailing hand. And I turned around, and I said, turn around. We turned it around, and sure enough, we saw them. Blue lips and everything, freezing cold, got them warm. I looked at him, and the kid, the kid looked at him. There's a video online you could look at. He looked at me, he says, there is no other reason I'm here but God. And so I'm asking us, yes, to believe in God's sovereignty and believe that he sends and believe that he rescues and believe that he heals, but I'm asking us to ask for opportunities to be about his plan for his glory and our good. And there is a balance to his sovereignty and asking to be about because our lives will be better for it and because of it. Nehemiah is, it's, it's got a lot of lessons that we continue to learn, that we will continue to learn. But the conclusion of my message here this morning is plain and simple with one question that I want to leave us as we take and we go from chapter one and the next week chapter two as we continue on, but here's the question that I want to resonate with you this week is, a burden God searches for burdened believers. Are you burdened about the things of God? That's the question on the table. Are you burdened about the things of God? The burden in Nehemiah grew, and we saw that in his prayers. And we saw that in his prayers because we saw his commitment to the word. And this message series about us coming together and being burdened about the things that God is burdened about, and that when it's all said and done, man, God will be glorified in how we represented him here in this city for his name and his sake. And, and what I wanted to do right now, as we conclude our time together, as we conclude chapter one together, is that Nehemiah stood up and he prayed a prayer on behalf of his people. And what I want us to do is I want to pray the prayer of Nehemiah over us. I want to, I've, I've personalized it some so that this would be our prayer collectively if you'll allow me that freedom to do that. That I would be able to stand up here and that I would pray and pray over us that God would give us an, a burden that where we would sit, where we would weep, where we would mourn, where we would fast and that we would do our part for the glory of God as we're here. And so, the, the worship team, of course, is here. We're going to sing two songs afterwards. But what I want us to do is I, I want you to stand. I just want you to stand right now, okay? If you're with your family right now, I'd love for you to just grab hands and hold hands across the eye, just across your area. We're a family. We want to live this out together. And so I'd love for you to, to bow your head, to close your eyes as I pray Nehemiah's prayer over us and ask that the burden that he had for the things of God would be a burden that we would have for the glory of his name.
So let me pray. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who God keeps his commandments and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of those of us here at Northwest Community Church that I now pray on our behalf. Lord, let us pray these prayers day and night for the people of our church and for the people of our city. May we come to confess our sins which we have sinned against you. Lord, we have acted very selfishly and corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments like we should. May God, will you remember the word of your commandment? We hold on to this truth. When you said it to Nehemiah, you, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But Lord, we're so encouraged by verse nine that says, but if you return to me, and you keep my commandments, and you do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. May your, may your name dwell here at Northwest. May your name dwell in our life groups. May your name dwell among our families. May our families be transformed by the gospel to gospel transformation. We are your servants, and we are your people. You have redeemed us by your great power and by your strong hand. And so, Lord, we're asking for your ear to be attentive to our prayers right now and for the prayers of all those that are lifted up today and this week. That we delight to fear your name and we're asking you to give us success or opportunities in our city, in our workplace, and in our neighborhoods. And that you would grant us mercy in the sight of men and that you would not allow us to be distracted. May you use this book of Nehemiah to ignite a fire in our souls for you and your work. May we look for opportunities to live what we are learning. May God, you look at Northwest in a due season, and may you look out and may you see there's a group of burdened believers. We love you. We thank you for seeking us out. We thank you for finding us. We thank you for rescuing us. May you use our study in this book titled Together for your good and your glory, for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.